Christ has risen. Truly he has risen. Welcome back to Becoming Byzantine. My name is Father Michael Wynn, and we're now entering into Lesson 26 on the Byzantine Christian Temple and the Domestic Church. This will cover paragraphs 579 through to 667 in the Ukrainian Catholic Catechism, Christ our Pascha. So our Lord has revealed himself to us. Um, we, we have an Old Testament uh, revelation of the Holy Trinity at the Oak of Mamre to Abram and Sarai. And uh, you can see on the left side of your screen the icon by Rublev of the Holy Trinity. You can see the Oak of Mamre in the background. And so the Father is uh, on the left, the Son in the center, and the Spirit on the right. So here our Lord has appeared to us, and he has made him his, uh, his presence known to both Abram and Sarai. And um, the, so we have already an understanding of God revealing himself to us in a f- physical location. As, uh, as the descendants of Abraham formed um, from Jacob, uh, uh, Isaac and then Jacob and the, the 12 tribes of Israel, um, and uh, they were in uh, Egypt and saved uh, from the, the Pharaoh through Moses uh, and brought uh, to, Mount, uh, to the mountain whereby they received the Ten Words of the Ten Commandments, um, and the tabernacle was, uh, was built because it was a physical uh, revelatory uh, place where we knew that the Lord existed. The Lord led Israel through uh, a pillar of cloud uh, by day and a pillar of uh, fire at nighttime, led Israel through across the Red Sea. And so these, uh, the things that the Lord had given, the the Ten Commandments and the two tablets, um, the manna that uh, fell from heaven, some of it was contained, the staff of Aaron that uh, budded and so forth, these were contained within the tabernacle. And there was a tent that was built around it, and, and sacrifices uh, began to be offered according to the law of Moses, a visible sign of God's presence among his people. Remember what we sing from Isaiah, God is with us, is Nami Boch. And then finally, that, that tent temple or tabernacle, ended being built into a uh, permanent structure in Jerusalem. Of course, it's a foreshadowing of Christ, as the Catechism mentions in 581. Um, The temple became a place of encounter between God and humanity. And uh, is there where um, the yearly Passover sacrifice was made, and also the sacrifices throughout all all the year, that of blood, that of bread, that of incense. And then, uh, of course, our Lord became incarnate, and he, um, he created us to be the temple of God. And um, so from the Jewish temple and the synagogue, the early Christians uh, started to um, encounter our Lord together in the synaxis and the assembly, where they would hear the word and where they would celebrate the Eucharist and receive the body and blood of Christ so this is the beginnings of the Christian churches. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we are the temple of God. As God said, I will live in them and move among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
So we began to have a localized presence of the Lord, how we encounter him within churches. And over centuries, the church developed into a common form. You can see that on the left. This is not a crucifix form, just more of a, a, a simple a church where you, there are three sections, the narthex, the nave, and the sanctuary. Those are the three major sections. They actually reveal an orientation or a vector, a journey for us. That the narthex is re representative of the world of everyday cares. And it's from that world which we arrive to worship Christ. We come to know him in that world. And the nave is the kingdom of God fully revealed in Christ Jesus and being realized by the faithful. So we're like in a boat. That's where the word navy comes from. Uh, in a boat that we are journeying together with Christ uh, and it being and the, the realization of, uh, of the fullness of the kingdom of God happening in our midst. It's like being in the boat with the apostles and our Lord. The altar area or the sanctuary, both names are, are, are used. This also represents heaven to which we are all oriented. The holy table is at the center of this, place, this space. And the proscomedia table would be on the north side, uh, kind of in the apsidal dome, just kind of 45 degrees, if you want to call it, um, from the altar. And that's to the left. And then because the church is always oriented towards the east. And then the vesting table would be on the south side of 45 degree angle as well. Our orientation is to the east, always to the east, because that is where the light arrives, it comes from, and it is said from where Christ will come again. Well, often there are domes on the church, and this reveals the union of heaven and earth, the uncreated and the created. Uh, the union of Christ and his bride, the church, which is so often used um, by Christ within his own teachings. And um, Paul, I think, especially Ephesians chapter 5, when he, when he talks about how we all submit each other to, to submit to each other out of reverence for Christ and husbands and wives are kind of reveal that, that relationship of Christ to his church as, as, a, as a bride and bridegroom. Icons are used within our worship. What is an icon? An icon is simply the word image. That's, that's all it is. Um, and we utilize icons um, because icons in and of themselves reveal uh, Christ and uh, his saints who are in him. Um, the Old Testament forbade idolatry right? It's very clear about that. But it's wrong to think that it forbade images, because even in the uh, tabernacle tent, and in the permanent um, uh, temple in Jerusalem, there were sewn into the curtains images of the angels. There are two angels on top of, uh, of the tabernacle itself, um, surrounding the mercy seat. And, and so, uh, when our Lord became incarnate, um, he became visible to us. He, we could touch him, and he could touch us. We could hear him. He could hear us. Um, uh, we could see him, and he could see us. Therefore, as St. John Damascene argued, it became possible to depict him. As a matter of fact, the early Christians started to do this right away. 
the making icons of of our Lord, of the Mother of God, and so forth. Uh, not not maybe not quite what you see on the screen right now, but something very similar to that. There was a time of icono, um, the iconoclasts that. Um, due to a number of influences, uh, a lot of icons were destroyed, taken out of churches, um, but it was actually the Seventh Ecumenical Council that, uh, with the writings of St. John of Damascus, um, you can look this up on the, on, the, on the holy images, where he argued, makes this argument, and that icons are restored to the life of the church. Icons are, are created in prayer and for prayer. They're, they're there so that we can contemplate prayerfully um, our Lord's presence in our lives and what he has done um, throughout salvation history and how, how he, while the author of creation and especially the one who restores that which is broken of the fall, um, while he's busy about doing all that work, he actually also loves each and every one of, one of us personally. The icons help to, to reveal that. There are also wonder-working icons that have, that have happened within the church. These are icons which, um, by which a, a divine blessing has been bestowed upon it by the grace of the Holy Spirit, and there's been healing power given to it um, by, by the Lord, by the activity of the Holy Spirit. Often these icons are covered with metal, um, Mother God may be crowned, and so forth. Some of the saints may be crowned. Um, and sometimes there are weeping icons. So in the Catechism, in, in paragraph 599, it speaks about some of them, some of these miraculous icons or wonder-working icons being in Pachayev, Zavrenitsya, Uniev, Hoshiev, Bells, Kolm, Vishorod, and Zirovitsi. Now, of course, these icons, oh, one last thing. If you look at the icon, you can see in the halo a cross behind our Lord's head. And there's three letters. It's read from top, then left to right. So it's two words, ho, the first top letter, and then the two word, two letters form another word, ho-on, ho-on, which is Greek, which means the one who is the being, um, or as it, it states within the Old Testament, I am who am. Now these icons start to be hung on the pillars that uh, would, would have been erected around the altar because people used to press around the altar, so they needed some space. So they started to um, designate this space by some pillars with a, with a top piece running on, along the top of those pillars. People started hanging icons on them, and this is how the, the iconostas started to be developed. Now, that's, it's quite ornate. You're looking here at the iconostas of the Metropolitan Cathedral in um, Winnipeg. And you can see that uh, our Lord is always to the right of the royal doors, the mother of God to the left. And then on this icon, uh, Iconostas, just before, beside our Lord is an icon of St. Stephen, and then Prince Volodymyr, who's one of the patrons of the church. And then beside the mother of God is St. Michael the Archangel and St. Olga, one of the patrons of the saints, uh, of the church, excuse me. Above that, you see festal icons, and then above that, the icons of the apostles. And above that, you'll see the kings and the prophets of the Old Testament. So salvation history is portrayed here on the iconostas. And indeed, throughout the entire church building, 
Now, there's a beautiful Russian Orthodox Church in San Francisco, uh, just to the west of the Golden Gate Bridge, and on the um, north side, uh, there's a beautiful icon of the Christ and the ten virgins as portrayed in the gospel. Five with oil, five without oil. A beautiful icon. It helps us understand to be prepared for our Lord's arrival. So the iconostas historically developed, as I had mentioned, but we, we now understand that it, it helps to separate between heaven and earth, right? But it also helps to unite heaven and earth. It hides the mystery of God, and yet at the same time, it reveals. How does this happen? Through the opening and closing of the doors. Sometimes there's a curtain as well, a veil um, uh, at the royal doors. Uh, during the time of Pascha, uh, bright week, uh, the, all the doors are opened uh, for the entire week. They're, they're not closed until just before Vespers on, uh, for um, Antipasca for Thomas Sunday. As I mentioned, all the icons are placed intentionally. Within the church itself, um, behind the iconostas, there's usually um, our Lord giving the Eucharist to um, the apostles. And then above in the apsidal dome is usually the mother of God looking down at the mother of God of, uh, of protection usually, or it could be Our Lady of the Sign, um, which uh, reveals um, the Lord within the womb of the mother of God. Sometimes in icons in the church, especially those for veneration, where they may be on different stands in front of the iconostas, there may be a relic of the saint. So let's talk about relics of saints. So uh, when the uh, church began to meet, and, and because the church was persecuted at first, it wasn't uh, allowed to exist, they, they often went to, um, uh, to hiding places to celebrate the Eucharist, and that's why there were porters developed to guard the doors. Um, and they would, uh, in Rome, they would go down into the catacombs, into the, into the tombs, and celebrate uh, the Eucharist on top of one of the martyrs, those who gave their life willingly for their faith in Christ Jesus. What well, relics are, are, are as part of the matter of a human person, right? And, and this is something important because it reveals, relics reveal our Christian anthropology, that we are our bipartite body and soul, that, that, and, and that our, our body matters. It's part of who we are as a human person. And so we venerate the relic of a, a saint, whether it be a piece of bone or whether it be a garment that they used or some, something that they had used within their life and so forth, we venerate that, uh, these relics, because that matter matters within salvation history. Now, there are different types of, of relics. First class relic would be understood to be the body of the saint. Uh, I'm thinking of of uh, Blessed Vasil Velochkovsky, who was a bishop of our church, um, and he suffered uh, greatly, great tortures uh, within the, the camps, and was released to Rome, and Metropolitan Maxim brought him to Winnipeg, and he died within a year because of how he was tortured because of, for the, his faith. So when he was exhumed, um, some of his toes fell off. So they're able to get some of the bones of the toes and they were able to put them into reliquaries. Those are containers for little tiny parts of, of the relic. 
And so you can venerate those relics here in Winnipeg at his tomb. In fact, his entire body is there. His body was, um, I don't know the exact definition of incorrupt, but, uh, but in my view, he's incorrupt, um, that he was easily recognizable when he was taken from the tomb. A second class relic is something that the saint used. And a third class relic is something that was touched to a first class relic. You know, um, the metropolitans of the Ukrainian Catholic Church, when they were enthroned, the head of St. Clement of Rome was touched to their head. Now, that head had been lost within the Black Sea, but apparently found. And uh, my understanding is it now resides within Pracharska Lavra in the city of Kyiv. Eucharist is always celebrated uh, on top of a relic. It's usually contained within a piece of cloth called an antimension, which is like a small um, uh, shroud, you know, the one that we use on Good Friday for our Lord. Uh, There's a small one with the relic sewn into it, and it's placed on the altar. And that is uh, what we, uh, we follow the example of the early Christians in celebrating the divine liturgy over top of a relic. For example, in, in, in my parish here in Winnipeg, the relic is of St. Josephat the Martyr. Another expression of our, of our faith is the liturgical chant. As I mentioned earlier, there's eight tones, and um, it's based upon the Octu Ichos, that's the book of eight tones. Now, we believe that the human voice is the very best instrument. As a matter of fact, I don't know if you know this, we're not to use any other instruments within church. Uh, Andrei Sheptitsky actually wrote about this uh, when he was uh, the, the head of the Ukrainian Catholic Church in the city of Lviv. Our music is very theological. It's poetic, but deeply theological. It, it reveals um, the apostolic teaching. Is part, it would be part of uh, that teaching, um, in, in, in our celeb- celebration of the services. We join our, our voices to that of the angels and the glory of the Holy Trinity. So singing, our chant, is always an expression of worship. There are various parts of our liturgical chant, a troparian, which has to do with a particular feast or a saint, a kontakian, which is usually a deeper reflection upon that saint or the event. Um, and then there's different stichira, uh, that are used, the liturgical hymnography at Vespers, at Matins, and so forth. Um, and Irmos and Ikos, they're all part of the canon, which I'd re- spoken about in our previous, uh, previous lesson. Two major writers of, of liturgical hymnography are Roman the Melodist and John Damascene. Um, very beautiful. Um, in some of the books that uh, we use, you'll actually see that these are... Um, uh, the attributions to these two men are, are all over the place. We also do not believe that uh, music should be just sung by one person, a cantor, although it does happen at times, or by a choir, which is a choral concert. A concert. But we really put emphasis upon uh, participation by everybody in the congregation. So the melodies are uh, usually easy enough uh, to have them memorized quickly, and um, and they are simple harmonies, at least in our in our uh, church, in the uh, both the Ukrainian Catholic and Ruthenian 
Um, I would even say, from my understanding of the Melkite church and so forth, they're easy enough to, to catch on and to sing. There are ritual prescriptions for chant, um, and that leads to a symphonic corporate prayer. Um, for, for example, you sing any, you just can't pick any tone to sing in. You sing in a particular tone, and um, that allows for everyone to pray together uh, and to sing together that prayer. And that way we are of one voice and one heart. Of course, we make all sorts of gestures within our worship. We are made of body and soul. So uh, prayer is not just um, of the mind and of the heart, but it's also physical. It's all part of the worship of our one true God. For the most part, we stand in all of our services. There are times when we raise our hands there are times when we bow, and that can be a bow at the shoulders, a bow at the waist. It can be bow touching the floor. It can be a prostration down to the floor, head touching the floor. It can be kneeling. It can be kissing, making the sign of the cross, embracing each other. All of these different gestures make our worship all the more interesting for one, but it helps us to when we say, let us bow before the Lord, then we actually bow. So um, we understand that, that um, our, our worship is physical as well. Now, the liturgical vestments, you can see here, bishop, priest, and deacon. Common to all three is um, a, uh, what's called a stakar. You've seen the bishop, it's white with some gold at the bottom. With the priest, it's white. And with the deacon, it's green. This is the, he's at the Feast of Pentecost. You can see the distinction. If you look just behind him, there's a priest with green vestments and a white stakar. The deacon's stakar is usually quite ornate. It's not white. The stakar represents the baptismal, uh, baptismal garment, not the certificate. <laughs> uh, we'll look at the priest. He's wearing an eptrichil, that's the long... Uh, garment that goes around his neck. It's in the center. What you can't see is that there's a belt tying it to the stakar, and you can't see is that there are cuffs uh, around each wrist, and then the felonion or felon covers, covers him completely. The bishop is not wearing, he's wearing it up to the heel. You can see the bottom of it there, and then he is wearing a, <clears throat> excuse me, a tunic um, uh, uh, on top of that, uh, where uh, it's called um, a sacos, representative of a sackcloth. And over top of that is the omophorion. He also has one other uh, garment, which is the epigonation, which is uh, a diamond-shaped uh, stiff garment, which is on the knee. It actually means on the knee. And it is uh, representative of the um, spiritual warfare that uh, happens. He also wears, of course, the um, crown or the mitra, as it's often called. And around his neck is the panagia, uh, which is the of uh, the All-Holy One, an image of the Mother of God. For um, As you go and rank for the bishops, you'll also add one for the Mother of God and of our Lord and the cross. This priest in the middle uh, is a mitered uh, priest, so he's wearing a crown, but he does not have a cross at the top. And then the deacon, also wearing cuffs, 
but he also has the long garment, though, is not around his neck, rather it's around his shoulders, and that is called the orarion, and he often uses it within the services of lifting up uh, the prayers to the Lord. Finally, some liturgical vessels and books and items. That's the gospel book that's there. You can see the chalice set that is used. That's a picture of an antimensary in the bottom right corner. Of course, incense is used. Let our prayer rise like incense before the Lord. And then the cross. This is an icon of, of the cross, and we venerate the cross. Um, we exalt it on the feast of the uh, September 14th, the exaltation of the Holy Cross, and again on the third Sunday of the Great Fast. Now, in the domestic church, we bring church home, believe it or not. We liturgize at home with a smaller community, which is our family. It's a microcosm of the church. The home also becomes a temple when it is consecrated after it's built. Remember I spoke about that in the last lesson about blessing your homes? That is that one blessing. We adorn it like our parish church, so there are icons, and we bless the home annually with holy water from Theophany, like we bless the church building at the Feast of Theophany. Um, the crowning takes place in the parish church, but it's lived out in the domestic church where the family is raised. And this is where we share the good news with each other, we pray together, and we witness with one's life to each other of Christ's presence. A beautiful way of doing that is in the icon corner. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the church, whether it be the parish church or the domestic church. And an icon corner symbolizes this. That's actually my icon corner, um, which uh, I had when I lived in Edmonton. As you can see, there's an icon of, the, of our Lord, the Mother of God, a cross, that's St. Andrew, and then that is uh, St. Theodosius uh, on the icons, and of course, Clement uh, Sheptitsky. It's a localized place of prayer for the family. So you can come together and pray together. Usually I like to tell my parishioners to come uh, each evening after supper for a little prayer together. Usually there's a Bible there, a prayer book, maybe a catechism is found there. So you can have prayer together as family, like I said, uh, in the evening after supper or just before bedtime, or maybe even the morning. I visit a family, they have an icon corner, and I, I'm often up early before they are. Uh, I make the coffee for them and um, I noticed uh, that um, that she comes down in the morning and goes right to the icons and starts her prayer before she even acknowledges me, before she says hi. Uh, I think it's very beautiful because they have taught their children to do the same. And children learn by example from parents, recognizing the presence of the Lord and, then, and doing so recognizing it in the person before you. The time to cover it together becomes normative and it becomes a habit within the lives of children, if parents will, will keep it up in the icon corner. And this is where we learn to pray unceasingly, as it says in First Thessalonians, the begin of uh, the Jesus prayer. Of course, within the domestic church, there are family rituals and customs. So in the catechism at the uh, near the end of it, there are prayers before meals and after meals. You can have a look at those. Um, there are vigil suppers for Christmas and Theophany, the holy meals, uh, 12 meatless dishes. Again, we have a Paschal breakfast. That's what the photo was here, the Paschal breakfast. And uh, this is also a place 
where we have family meetings and reconciliation. The, this is usually at the dinner table or before the icon corner. Um, we had ours, uh, my family used to have family meetings uh, within the living room, and there was always an image of our Lord there. We gather together for birthdays and anniversaries, and we, we ask the Lord for the blessings upon the wedded couple or upon those celebrating the birthday. We'll read scripture together and maybe have a joint lexio divina. In other words, instead of one person just reflecting on the scripture or one part of the scripture, we can do this together as a family. Often the lives of the saints are read or spiritual literature. And today we can add media to that as well. Different things on the internet that are available to us. So ends lesson 26 on the Byzantine Christian temple and the domestic church. Mm-hmm.